Well, good morning and Happy New Year, Hope Mississauga. It's great to be with you this morning. Please grab your Bibles and hopefully a pen and paper. We're going to be looking at the topic of God and government, as Pastor Mendoza just mentioned. Um, This is a big topic, and we are going to not be able to touch on every aspect of all that is entailed in covering this kind of a theme, but we hope to lay a biblical foundation for us and then build off of that some practical application for our own day. Now, we may not be able to get to everything. And so if you have a question that comes to mind, if there's something that uh, you would love an answer to, please jot it down and please write to us, email us, call us. I would love to be able to help answer any questions that you might have on this topic. Not that we have all the answers, but we do want to be able to have open conversations as a church family about this, opening up our word with the Bibles open and diving in together to see what God has said and how we are to be led in this. I also want to thank a bunch of different people who have been really helpful, not only for me personally, but I think for our church and for our elders in thinking this through. Uh, People like Ryan Fullerton, Jonathan Lehman, Andrew Shutton, or Andre Shutton, and others who have been just really uh, very helpful in providing resources. And to many of you who have emailed me articles and different uh, either talks or resources that have been helpful as I've been preparing for this talk. So I just want to say a big thank you just to so many people. It's so important that we are pursuing this topic and understanding it biblically and doing so together as a church family. Okay, there are three questions that we want to look at today, three questions that we want to really focus in on this morning, and these are the questions. Who are we to obey? How should we obey? And should we, when should we not obey? And the first question is, who are we to obey? Now, this might seem really, really obvious, but we are laying a foundation here. And so the answer is God. Sometimes I feel like certain questions are more Sunday school. They're just, you know, just a lob ball. It's nice and easy. We're starting off with a nice, simple question. Who are we to obey? God. We are to obey God. God is the creator and king of his universe. And Jesus himself clearly says in Luke 4, Verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, shall you listen to, shall you obey. And Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, also says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. The entire creation, over all of it, he reigns. Now, what is authority? What exactly is authority? It simply refers to the right and ability to govern. It has the power and permission to make decisions, lead, manage, order, enforce, reward, correct, within a sphere of responsibility, within a particular jurisdiction. And the greater that sphere is, the more one's right and ability is to govern. Of course, since God's fear is the entire universe, then he has all authority as creator and king over his creation. And we are to obey him always 
in everything. If there's anything that you hear today, hear this. We are always, always, always to obey God in everything. But God has also commanded that we obey some other things, like human authorities. Human authorities. God has set up these smaller human authorities under his supreme authority for our good. And we see this as an example in the institution of government itself. When Paul refers to in Romans 13 verse 1, let every person, no exceptions, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There is no authority except from God. All authority belongs to God. And yet, ever since creation, God has delegated some of his authority to others. So in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, he makes them like a king and a queen. And he gives them authority authority on earth as his image bearers to reflect his very character and to represent his rule on earth as they come under God's rule. Genesis 1, to 28 brings us out so clearly. It says, then God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over. There's that responsibility or the authority over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, bring it in subjection under your authority, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve were created in the very beginning to have dominion over the earth, to govern it, to nurture it, to protect it, to develop it in such a way that it reflected God's own character. And from this starting point, really, with Adam and Eve, all the other spheres of human authority that God designs flow from that. And they are also intended to represent and reflect God as well. So in the sphere of marriage, a husband is to be the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. And she is to submit to his leadership as the church submits to the word of Christ. In the sphere of family, parents are responsible for and have authority over their children just as God does over his family. And children are to obey their parents as we obey the word of God. In the sphere of the church, elders are to lead the members of the church, and members are to submit under their leadership as they come under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. In the workplace, employers are, to, are put in authority over their employees, and the workers are to submit and follow the directions and decisions of their supervisors. 
In government, ministers of parliament, that word ministers is literally taken from Romans 13 verse 4 where it says that they are God's servant, God's deacon, God's minister for your good. They are to govern this country while we as citizens come under and submit to their leadership. And so God has made all of these human institutions of authority for our good to enhance our society's order and well-being. Notice that they were designed by God before the fall. They're not sinful concepts or structures, but good gifts from God intended for displaying His glory and for our own good and human flourishing. Just think of all the blessings that we experience on a regular basis because we come under a human authority called government. Just looking at government in particular today. The next time you flush a toilet and then go wash your hands, marvel that you're not using the same water. We have a sewage system and access to clean, fresh water. This is an astounding grace, and it's a result of good government. The next time that you take a bus or drive along the 401 or use something as crazy as a sidewalk, marvel. This is the result of good government. Anytime that you have had to call 911, anytime that you have been in need of an ambulance or police or the fire department, it's the result of good government. Anytime that you notice bike paths or a park near your house or streetlights on your street or just the very fact that garbage and recycling and compost get picked up on a regular basis, this is all a result of good government as a means of grace, common grace in our lives to enhance order and human flourishing. The reason I highlight this is simply because in our day there is a shift to see these structures like government as inherently evil that must be destroyed and, and torn down. And then to even cancel those who hold serving positions in government structures. And nothing could be further from the truth. That is entirely contrary to Scripture. Anarchy is never the solution. Now, it is true that since Genesis 3, every one of these human authorities that we've discussed has been tainted and corrupted by sin and those who serve in those authorities, which has resulted in devastating injustices and cruelties. I don't want to downplay that. So that these representatives and the spheres of authority that they serve within no longer reflect God perfectly the way God initially intended and designed. But just as a believer does not, just as an unbeliever does not cease to be an image bearer, even though they're corrupted by sin, in the same way, these human authorities don't cease to represent God, even though they are corrupted by sin. In fact, these authority structures are actually needed now more than ever because of the wickedness and the fallenness of our world. These are common graces that God gives us to restrain the evil that would occur. Even though at times these very structures perpetuate evil, their very structure and design is intended to restrain evil so that it is not as evil as it could be. 
And we are called as believers to share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who serve in these roles and in these authority structures as we seek to redeem these very authority structures, bringing renewal and restoration into these instituted places in a fallen world. It's my prayer that more and more believers and followers of Jesus Christ would serve in these very areas. They would become politicians and police officers, teachers and paramedics and judges and lawyers. We need gospel light in all of these areas. And we need to pray for those who are already serving faithfully in them. So God has designed various human authorities to represent him for our good. Even after the fall, even though they've been corrupted by sin, they still represent him in this fallen world. Now, you might be wondering, do these human authorities just have free reign to do whatever they want? They, they just get a VIP ticket? They can just do whatever? No. No, thankfully, that is not the case. It's important to realize that God has designed each of these spheres of human responsibility, sorry, human authority, with limited power to carry out certain limited responsibilities for our good. So a husband has the responsibility to love and lead and nurture his wife, but has no authority or right to lay a hand on her. Parents have the responsibility to train and nurture and even correct and discipline their children, but have no authority to fine them or to incarcerate their kids. Elders have the responsibility to teach and to encourage and even correct members of the church, but have no authority to imprison them or to execute capital punishment. It's absolutely unthinkable. But government, according to Romans 12, 2 to 5, sorry, Romans 13, 2 to 5, has the responsibility to do good, to reward obedience and to punish evil, even to the point of removing freedoms through imprisonment, through incarceration, or even removing life through capital punishment. In Canada, that's been outlawed. But according to Scripture, government actually has the authority for even such a, a vast degree, an extreme degree of punishment. But government has no authority to tell people what to think or believe, or to feel. Only God has that kind of absolute sovereign authority over all of creation and each of his creatures in creation, that he would even be able to have the authority to dictate what we are to love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Who can have that kind of authority that he would command our emotions or Jesus saying, believe in God, believe also in me, that he is the authority to tell us who we are to believe, the authority to direct and shape our conscience so we even have an idea of what is right and what is wrong according to and conform to his word. That is absolute sovereignty and authority which only God has. Government has no authority in those ways. And so... As we have looked at already, God has created these different human authorities to carry limited power, to carry out limited responsibilities under his sovereignty. And so the first question that we've looked at 
already. We have answered. We are to obey God. We are to obey God and his human authorities that he has placed in our life. This, of course, leads us to the next question. How should we obey? How should we obey these God and these human authorities? What does it look like practically to obey imperfect human authorities in particular? And the first thing that we need to see is that we obey God through human authorities. We obey God through them. This is so foundational to understand. As believers, we obey God through or by submitting to the human authorities that God has placed in our lives. Our obedience through these human authorities is not because they are perfect. None of them are. Speaking as a husband and as a father and as an elder, we are not perfect, and yet we obey, we submit through them because God is perfect, and He is worthy to be obeyed and honored always. And so in marriage, in Ephesians 5.22, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord or as to the Lord. Their act of submission is really an act of submission to the Lord. They are submitting to their husbands not because their husbands are perfect, but because God is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except God. And so God is worthy to be obeyed. Or in families, Ephesians 6, 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. A child's obedience in the Lord or to the Lord happens when the child obeys the parent, and through the parent, is honoring God. Or in the workplace, Ephesians 6 verse 7, workers are to render service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. Workers are to serve their employers as if they were serving the Lord Jesus himself. They serve not because their bosses are perfect, but because Jesus is. And the same is true for government. In Romans 13, verse 2, it says, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so the opposite is true, which is to say that whoever obeys governing authorities is also obeying the God who appointed those governing authorities. We are able to obey God through obeying our government. And so we are to obey God through these imperfect human authorities, not because they're perfect, but because God is, and he is worthy of our obedience. In fact, Romans 12, verse 1, and Ephesians 5, 18 indicate that by obeying God through these human authorities, we are actually committing acts of worship and rendering spiritual service unto God, unto God that overflow from the gospel and is evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as believers. So it's very important, so foundational to understand that God intends. Sometimes we just want to, oh, I just obey Jesus. I just, I just stick to the word of God. But God and Jesus have put other authorities in our life, and the way we obey God and Jesus is by obeying the authorities he's put in our lives. There's another way that God calls us to obey, and that is with Christ-likeness. It's with Christ-likeness. God does not just want uh, hypocrites. He wants to protect us from just going through the motions of obedience on the outside and not having a consistency with what's going on on the inside. He wants there to be 
consistency, integrity. He cares about the inside just as much as the outside. He's demanding holistic obedience and empowering it, enabling us by His Spirit to do that. And so, for example, when we obey the government, the Scripture calls us to do so with thankfulness, with thankfulness and not grumbling. This has been personally hard and very convicting for me. There's been times where I'll read something or hear something and just murmur under my breath. And those who are closest to me, then I actually begin to articulate some of those murmurs. And I have had to confess my sin and repent. Because the Scripture says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling. When you read the newspaper or the news or posts online and social media, you're to do so without grumbling. And Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to obey with thankfulness and without grumbling. We're also to obey with honor, not disrespect. With honor and not disrespect. First Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now the emperor that Peter is talking about here is probably Nero, one of the cruelest and most evil Caesars of Rome, who was responsible for Peter's own martyrdom, probably. And yet Peter says to honor him. And so we ought to, in our own day, speak respectfully about those who govern us, whether in person or on social media. It is right to address them as Prime Minister Trudeau, Premier Ford, and Mayor Brown, just as Paul addressed Agrippa as King Agrippa when he spoke to him. And not to malign them or mock them digitally or verbally, just as Paul affirmed in Acts 23, verse 5, regarding the high priest, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It is a sin. And I fear that some of the things that we as believers post online or say around the kitchen table is not Christ-like. And so we are to honor and respect our governing officials, submitting to them with thankfulness and without grumbling, with honor and not disrespect. But we're also called to be wise and not naive. To be wise and not naive. God is well aware that we live in a wicked world and the days are evil. And so Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. To be wise. We must be wise. It says, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There is a way to be wise without sinning, to be discerning without deception, being full of grace and truth without a hint of evil or malice in our speech, and in all our actions. We know this to be true because Jesus himself did this. He modeled this for us and now calls all those who follow Christ to do the same. And in so doing, we obey God through our human authorities with Christ-likeness. But a question many people are asking these days 
is whether there is ever a time where the government has gone too far. Is there ever a time when we can no longer obey the government? Well, this leads to our last question. When should we not obey? When should we not obey? We've already seen how God has designed government with limited authority to carry out certain limited responsibilities for our good. And we've already seen how this government and those who serve in it, like all of the world, have been corrupted by sin, and yet we're still called to obey and submit to them. Well, what happens if the sin they are committing or commanding others to commit clearly causes a believer or a church to disobey God? Should we still obey the government? The Bible teaches that we should always submit to our civil government unless it clearly commands us to disobey God. Then, in that situation, we must choose divine obedience over civil disobedience. So we must choose divine obedience over civil obedience lest we be found sinning against God himself. If God cannot be obeyed, then we can no longer obey civil government. Now, most of the time, there's no conflict here. Obeying the government is consistent with obeying God, whether you're paying taxes or whatever you're doing. You can do both with a clear conscience. The only time that changes, and it's rare in this country, but not in other places, is when the government clearly commands a believer or a church to directly disobey a command of God, either by omission or commission, either by commanding that the church or believer not do something that God has commanded or commanding the believer or church to do something that God has forbidden. In both of those situations, in such cases, we must continue to obey God by not obeying the government. Peter and the apostles exemplify this when they respond to the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin who had forbidden them from sharing the gospel, forbidden them from carrying out the great commission which Jesus commanded. And they said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they declare, we must obey God rather than men. This is referred to as civil disobedience. But is civil disobedience, isn't that sin? Isn't it wrong to disobey our government? Well, it is a sin if you disobey the government over something that doesn't actually break God's law. That's just plain disobedience. That's just sin. But sin that incurs the wages of sin, which is death, and occur, incurs the wrath of God. And on that last day, we will be judged according to all that we have done and said and thought and have acted out. And so it is no small thing that we're talking about here. These are the very sins, like disobeying and rebelling against God and his government. These are the very sins that Jesus took on the cross and paid for. These are the very sins that send people to hell that Jesus had to pay for in order to rescue and save us. This is no small matter. Even one of his 12 disciples was a zealot an insurrectionist, someone who plotted against the Roman government to overthrow them, and Jesus saved him and paid for all of his insurrectional sins. 
But if civil disobedience is because a Christian is seeking to avoid disobeying God, if civil disobedience is the result of a believer saying, I can no longer obey government because I have to continue to obey God. If I obey the government and follow this command or edict that they have just handed down, I would be disobeying God and I must obey God because he is the highest authority. I always, always, always must obey God. And in these situations where a believer is being required to disobey God, then civil disobedience is not a sin. But it's actually an act of divine obedience. The act is good and not evil. It's actually righteous and not unrighteous in the sight of God. You'll remember the famous story about Daniel and the lion's den. Classic story, an incredible story of faith. But we learn so much from this story and how Daniel refused to obey King Darius's edict that no one could pray to anyone except King Darius. And so Daniel responds by going up to his room and praying to the one true and living God. As we know, this was a righteous act of civil disobedience. We know this because as we keep reading the story, after Daniel is thrown in the lion's den because of his disobedience to the government, he lives, and the next morning, the king runs out and asks if Daniel is still alive, if God was able to save him. And Daniel responds to the king in Daniel 6.22 by saying, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm, no injury, no crime, no evil. Daniel was found blameless before God and the king, even when he disobeyed the king's blasphemous edict. Why? Because Daniel was obeying the highest authority, God himself. By not obeying Darius, the lower authority, and what he had commanded. As, Andrew, as Andre Shutton observes, obeying the law of God, even if it clearly breaks the law of man, is no crime at all. What becomes immediately apparent is that it it is very important to be able to, if we're going to discern what is righteous civil disobedience, and if that's required, we need to know the commands of God. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know what God has actually called and commanded of his church and as us as believers. Otherwise, we risk misinterpreting the situation and potentially disobeying God and government. And in our present day, there's a real concern that some of God's commands are being violated and forbidden by the current government restrictions regarding COVID. For example, God commands us to gather regularly to hear the Word of God read and prayed and preached and sung and to respond with singing and prayer and praise to God. We are commanded to gather regularly to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to do baptism 
the question that becomes, are we still able to obey these commands of God while at the same time abiding by the restrictions of the government? Each church and their situation and their ability to carry out these commands may differ due to one's location and region. As we've seen, that restrictions have changed and varied from place to place. Facility layout and availability, the church's own polity and tradition, but at Hope Church Mississauga, in our context, the elders believe that it is as difficult as it is to abide by these current COVID restrictions, we do believe civil disobedience is not required at this time because the government has been intentional about not enacting a complete and total ban on the church from fulfilling these commands. These restrictions have certainly been restrictive in our expression of obedience to these commands, but we can still obey with an expression that is nevertheless true and sufficient, and we believe pleasing unto the Lord. For example, our church right now is still permitted not only to gather virtually online, but in person in groups of up to 10 people in our own facility to carry out religious rites, ceremonies, and services. This means that we can continue to gather to hear the Word of God, read and prayed and sung and taught. We are still able to do baptisms. And we are still able to do the Lord's Supper, and we pray that we may be able to do that very soon again. And we encourage small groups to continue to gather in person at this facility to continue to participate in these activities, knowing that at the same time, there's going to be those who, because of medical reasons or health issues or conscience sake, are choosing to join us virtually online. And that's totally understandable in this season. And so we believe that we can still obey God and government as the church, as a church, because these restrictions are limited and not complete. And our ability to carry out God's commands have been reduced but not eliminated, requiring us to be creative but uncompromising, patient but persistent, longing for the time when we can more fully express our obedience to the Lord with greater freedom as we head before. Let me make another clarification. Even though we believe that as Christians and at this church, we are not yet forced into a position of civil disobedience because of these COVID restrictions, we do not want to convey the idea that our elders are not concerned about what's going on. We are very concerned about these COVID restrictions and other laws that are currently being proposed in government, such as Bill C-6. We are very concerned in two ways, and we need to view these issues through two lenses. We are concerned as Christians and as citizens. We're concerned as Christians because these restrictions are very restrictive in hindering the church body from caring and loving and doing all the one another's of scriptures to the fullest degree and expression possible. And the church is going through very difficult times, emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, spiritually, and that we desire to be able to come alongside those who are suffering. And our current abilities are still possible, but greatly restricted. And this is not healthy long for the long term as a church family. 
But we're also concerned as citizens, as citizens of Canada in this country, because these restrictions clearly violate the Charter of Rights and Freedom and our Canadian Constitution. As citizens, we are being asked and told to suspend our rights and abide by government restrictions because they are temporary and not permanent, consistent and not partial, justifiable and not arbitrary, fitting, not disproportionate, and evidently loving to neighbor rather than unloving. These reasons I've just mentioned are not the final basis by which we determine whether civil disobedience is necessary or not, but they do represent biblical truths that inform us as Christians and as Canadian citizens on how we should engage our government in expressing our agreement or disagreement in this regard. However, the longer this pandemic goes on and the more the narrative and the restrictions change, it is becoming less evident that these restrictions are evidently temporary, consistent, justifiable, fitting, or loving. And so in light of this, as concerned Christians and citizens, we are calling the church to pray and to fast for our country. We're gathering this Wednesday, January 6th, for an online prayer meeting where we are seeking the Lord together to cry out to God for his mercies and for his leading and guiding in these matters so that we may love not only one another as a church family better, but that we may proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the fullest degree and expression. I would also ask that you prayerfully consider reaching out to your local government representative, your mayor, your MPP, your local city councilor, to share your concerns. This is exactly what Paul does in Acts 16, 37, and Acts 22, verse 25, in a very different time and age under the Roman Empire, but Paul voices his objection to the government of his day based on his citizenship as a Roman. And so we ought to do the same. We have actually been given incredible freedoms in this democracy to be able to engage and interact and voice both our agreement or disagreement with our local representatives. This is the beauty of democracy. And so we encourage you to do so. A handout will be made available that helps walk through just some very basic steps on how you might do that, if that's of any help to you. And for these kind of resources, again, I'm just thankful for pastors like Justin Galati and, on, and others like Andre Shutton who have shared these resources with the church. In closing, I just want to say a word about conscience. There is room here to disagree in this area. There are good gospel-preaching churches and believers who land on slightly different positions than we have as a church as to whether the time for civil disobedience has come or has not come. And I think Paul's words here in Romans 14 and 15 are very instructive, allowing room for conscience for believers and churches to disagree with one another and yet still love and honor one another and the Lord in their respective positions. Even though we may not agree on some of the finer details, we still love these people 
and pray for them and are so thankful for them as they are setting a wonderful, godly example of consistency between conviction and action. And they are being just as Berean as we are. That is, they are being just as diligent and faithful to search the Scriptures to find out what is true and then seeking to be as consistent in living that out according to those convictions. And even though we may disagree on the finer details of the interpretation and the application, we nevertheless are still united in Christ and we love them and pray for them and extol their example of consistency. But I'd like to ask each of us this morning, where is your heart before the Lord? If you're an unbeliever and you've been listening to this and you're just thinking, this is absurd. I mean, the government's clearly ridiculous. We need to rebel. We need to remove government. I would encourage you to realize that often our view of government reflects our view of God the God who will judge the living and the dead, God, Jesus Christ, who is coming again on that last day with books that that will be opened, that have recorded every word and thought and emotion and action and deed that each of us have ever done. And if we have never come to Christ to ask for forgiveness, then those things that are written in that book will stand against us and will condemn us Because God, with all authority, as our creator and king, judges us justly and rightly. There is no corruption in his government. There is no hiddenness. It's not as though he doesn't have all the facts. He's got them all, and he sees them clearly and rightly, and he will judge accordingly. And so I, I plead with you to put your faith in the one who is coming before he comes. Put your faith in Jesus Christ who left heaven and all of his authority there and came to earth and came under the authority of parents, under the authority of the law, under the authority of Jewish leaders, under the authority of the Roman government and obeyed them perfectly as unto the Lord to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he might win for us the forgiveness that we need for all the rebellion that we have committed against all the human authorities that God has put in our life and therefore all the rebellion that we have done against God himself. Put your faith in this Savior who comes to forgive us of all of our sins and give us a new heart that actually wants to submit to authority and then gives us his Holy Spirit who now enables us to love And submit to authority even when it's wrong and in error or corrupted because we do it as unto the Lord. Put your faith in him. If you're a believer this morning and you know that you have not dealt with this issue of government with Christ-likeness, again, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He is able to not just forgive you of all the things that you have done and said, And as I mentioned already, I have had to come to Jesus repeatedly through this whole year for many things, but particularly as we've been wrestling through this issue of government. But go to Jesus not just for forgiveness, but transformation. He has given you a new heart. He has given you the Holy Spirit. Cry out to him. Pour out your frustration to him or your thankfulness to him, but let him transform your heart and ask him, with renewed joy and strength to begin to walk in obedience, in submission to the authorities that he has placed in your life as unto the Lord.
Let us trust and turn to Jesus together, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and who is coming again. He is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to turn our eyes to Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his wondrous grace. We love you. We pray, Jesus, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you? For you are the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God on high. So Jesus, you know exactly what this is like, and you know it actually to an infinite degree. We're, our struggles, our trials are so so much smaller than what you endured. But you come to us. You are able to sympathize with us. You are our great high priest. You know what it's like to be in our situation, and even more so. And so I pray, Lord, you would encourage us with this truth. And would you help us to keep our eyes on you? Help us to trust in you and not in our own wisdom. Help us, Lord Jesus, to come under your word and not the words and opinions of those on social media. God, let your word reign in our life. Let us delight and flourish under your authority. God, we ask that you would do this for your glory, for the honor of your name, and for our own joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.